We recently asked a couple hundred of you emerging biotech leaders about your go-to sources of information when you face tough professional challenges. Your top response wasn't webinars, it wasn't scientific journals, it wasn't trade shows, it wasn't even consultants. Far and away, you said you most often turn to your peers for trusted insight. Enabling a community of peers is what the Business of Biotech podcast is all about. It's also what our new Business of Biotech newsletter is all about. Peer-driven content, no strings attached, delivered to your inbox once a month. Go to bioprocessonline.com backslash B-O-B to subscribe. The Business of Biotech is produced by Bioprocess Online, part of the Life Science Connect community with support from Cytiva. Cytiva also demonstrates its commitment to the leaders of new and emerging biopharma at cytiva.com backslash emerging biotech. Check that out. So we're about 10 months post-approval of the Inflation Reduction Act. And while the sky hasn't fallen, the biotech capital markets and innovation scenes are in a seemingly protracted slump compared to the years-long rally we'd been enjoying. And the IRA's imminence is concerning many in our space. I'm Matt Piller. This is the Business of Biotech. And on today's show, we're getting a grip on the Inflation Reduction Act with none other than the phenom of biopharma finance himself, Alan Shaw. Alan, welcome back. I've missed you. Uh, great to be back. I missed you guys as well. And uh, as always, uh, I look forward to our uh, discussion. Yeah, me too. Me too. So we've been talking about having a, a conversation. I think I think what we've been talking about is having a, a few conversations about the, uh, the the Inflation Reduction Act because there's so much to cover here. But we figured we'd get started uh, today with a conversation around what it is, what it intends to do, and perhaps what some of the unintended consequences might be. So let, let's start there, Alan. For those who, who haven't been following along, uh, what is the Inflation Reduction Act uh, set to do? Give us a level set on what the act is and, and why it came to pass. You know, it means different things to different people, I would say, and it's certainly been characterized as such. You know, I, I would say it was gen generally speaking, it was advertised as, as a historic down payment on deficit reduction to fight inflation, direct investment for domestic energy production and manufacturing with the aim to significantly re uh, reduce carbon emissions. It was also advertised to actually increase IRS resources to go after all those tax deadbeats and improve the tax collection process um, as well. Additionally, like, so what you're saying, I'll interrupt you real quick because like what what you're saying, like already in this short response, is already like uh, indicative to me of just a a fat bill that has this tidy little name, you know. Like we recognize, we recognize that the economy is in some is in some peril. Inflation was running rampant. We we saw it coming for some time. So so let's uh, let's put together a tidy little inflation reduction package uh, that you you've just hit on like I don't know half a dozen issues uh, seemingly I guess that we could tie to inflation Car carbon emissions really like I don't, it, it seems like it seems like there's a lot going on there already Alan and I and I inter and I cut you short. Yes. And then really where they kind of served it all up on a platter, you know, clearly, as you touched on, there are special interest groups and pandering that went obviously went into it. But it was done in all in the spirit of with the aim of being able to lower health care costs. Mm. 
Uh, and, and it's uh, and it's interesting because you know the United States actually has uh, the highest highest uh, cost per capita, uh, but we also have the lowest uh, life expectancy. So we actually do pay more for less, ironically, with with that. So so one of the things that they were trying to do in respect to lowering healthcare, and this is really a, a first time event, is they're allowing Medicare to uh, negotiate directly for prescription prices um, over in the forthcoming years, starting in uh, 2025. Um, and regrettably, you know, this focus on lowering costs really overlooked what's really wrong with the healthcare system. You know, it's really a um, continuing the old paradigm of focusing on cost and profit as opposed to being really a, a focused on patient outcomes and value to the healthcare system. Uh, and, and really ignored the fundamental fact that there's a lack of accountability and coordination with healthcare spend, uh, which I can certainly go on forever for. And perhaps we could say that for alcohol, but we, you know, as, as uh, we have time, we can certainly talk to it. Well, it's, it's, it's curious to me, like the, the, I guess the, um, the separation from, patient outcomes, which, you know, for, for many years now, there, there have been uh, advocacy groups uh, working toward outcomes-based medicine, right? Like it's, it's been a buzzword. It's been something that, uh, you know, we, we've seen fits and starts of momentum on for, for years now. Um, why, like, I, I guess, give me some more color on how the, the Inflation Reduction Act kind of moves us away from the momentum that we'd been building around outcomes-based medicine for, for seemingly for, for so long. Well, it, it, it doesn't necessarily undermine that, but I think, you know, in terms of what it did, it didn't really focus on patient outcomes and, and I'll speak to it a little bit more on how it's really impacted the biopharma industry in terms yeah. of the way it's kind of, um, tamping down on innovation and yeah. you know the uh, the inf the, inf the inflation reduction act of 22 which as you know i i, I uh tongue-in-cheek refer to it as the innovation reduction act yeah. um is poised to be a landmark event for the u.s healthcare system uh as, as we talked about it materially degrades the investment case for certain therapeutics for unmet medical needs and it's really, I mean, it's incredible, but it's the first time in the U.S. that a patent-defined period of market-based exclusivity uh, has been uh, undermined and curtailed with government price setting uh, for R&D-intensive sectors. You know, there's rate of returns. You know, there's 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 math behind the risk that's calculated behind this, and it, and it really fails to appreciate it. Or put another way, it really takes it all for granted. Like people are just doing this in their spare time and they, you know, the benevolence of it all. I mean, it, it really is driven by the capitalistic nature of our system and our ecosystem is second to none. Um, and, and, you know, as a consequence of this, you know, there's this je clearly jeopardizes, the, the, to your point, the, the, the progress that biotech has been making in terms of innovation. And also be given the fact that it's kind of putting you right into the uh, jaws of uh, 
Medicare for price negotiation. It's also going to have an implication, uh, arguably, uh, on the availability of drugs that will be developed for senior citizens. Uh, when there's alternatives in terms of drug development where you, you have a little less pricing headwinds. Um, uh, so, yeah, so this is all a complication. And in, in order to do this, the mechanism is really letting Medicare negotiate directly with the manufacturer. Uh, so it is pushing us more to a single pay system that has arguably worked elsewhere in the world. But again, it's again, what are you measuring against? You know, if you're looking for innovative medicines, um, it, it's it's uh, difficult. And, and it, what it's also done, uh, I think, to really go on further is when it sets the bar for being pushed into Medicare uh, negotiations, it actually calls out a, a fundamental distinction um, for small molecules. Mm-hmm. And that in itself is going to have fierce implications. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned the 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 cost paradigm, right? Like the intent to reduce healthcare costs. And I, I read some uh, commentary from the Incubate Coalition not too long ago. It says of the act that it it might drive down costs for the government, but not necessarily for patients. And that seems like it's a 180 from the intent, right? Because it seems to fly in the face of the intent here. So can you break that down, like how that could possibly be? So it, 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 there's a few things that it, that drives that. And, and I think the answer is it kind of depends. Mm. In a nutshell, some conditions and, and people will be experiencing lower costs. But many will also potentially result in higher costs or restricted access if rebates are misplaced by price setting. For instance, the IRA will let seniors pay more for proper insurance. Uh, and this effectively transfers seniors paying more for pay senior patients in society as opposed to society paying for senior patients. Uh, so I think insurance premiums will go up. They do highlight the fact that the out-of-pocket costs for senior citizens, once this goes into effect, will be limited at $2,000. So there's some different contracting views. Um, It's also worth pointing out, too, that, you know, if you don't have medicines that come to market, it's also going to cost patients more money because the system will be cost more money. You know, one of the major, besides the resource implications on small molecules and large biologics, the other, I think, major, major headwind for patients and society is the fact that the timing for uh, market exclusivity goes off on the very first product approval. So it really eliminates the incentives and the um, to be able to do label expansions and move into other indications mm-hmm. like, like like Dupixent. You know, Dupixent is helping a wide range of people. You know, whether it's for skin or asthma, uh, they just recently got another indication approved. Uh, there's no incentive to do that because you're yeah. not going to get the return on investment because you, the clock starts ticking. So I think they also mean that by because of the you're foregoing therapies that could actually be much more cost effective because we're focused on the wrong things, um, you're going to ultimately cost patients more money than less. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. You, you, I mean, you just hinted at this too. It's also been said that the the IRA 
encourages pharma companies to stop looking for new applications of existing drugs for post-approval research for secondary indications. And that's that's interesting to me, especially in in the context of uh, I, I I recently met uh, a guy named David Fagenbaum who who uh, runs an organization called Every Cure everycure.org. And he's a, he's a doctor. He, he, he wrote a book called chasing my cure. And he's a doctor who uh, had a, a serious disease that he, he himself found uh, a, an off-label use of an existing approved drug to effectively cure himself. Um, it's an inspiring story. And the, the, you know, from what I'm, what I'm picking up here, that more opportunities to repurpose existing drugs like that, which David Fagenbaum is working so hard to uh, to enable, um, is in peril here. Can you comment on that? Like, what why this this act would have negative implications on the opportunities to repurpose existing, find find new applications for existing drugs? Yes, it it kind of speaks to the fact that once the product is approved. Uh, they the med to clock or measurement. So if it's a large molecule, it's 13 years. For a small molecule, it'll be nine years. Mm-hmm. So that's the time where you have pricing control and have market exclusivity. After that time, you, you basically are subject to negotiating with uh, CMS. And while it's yet to be seen, I, I don't know if the negotiation is really a negotiation. I think it's kind of a take it or leave it prop proposition. So, you know, if, if you're going to expand into different indications, you're running different trials, right? You're, you're, that's an investment that's being made. And there's an expected return for that investment. And if you're going to be shortening the runway, um, you're going to impact the ability to generate a return. And that's what, and so that that that's a fundamental issue. And 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 what and this rule change, which seems rather arbitrary between small and large molecules, I don't quite get it. But it really undermines really all the incentive that Hatch Waxman provided uh, for R and D in, in investment. And this was a kind of an industrial contract with society. And this really up upended it. And really, again, focused focused on, 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 on the wrong thing. So, uh, you know, what people fail to appreciate is that, you know, it's usually the last five years or so of your exclusivity period that represents about 50% of the profits that you generate. So once you cut that tail off, you know, there's no real incentive to invest and extend these these drugs, and uh, uh, in, in, in terms of other indications, and it also um, because of this, it effectively pushes the the more cost effective small molecules, which are uh, less costly to manufacture. They're uh, you know there's an argument, but people perceive them to be easier for patient administration, uh, and it actually puts ironically an emphasis on higher cost therapeutics, which are the large molecules. You know, manufacturer antibodies are a lot more expensive and, and there's more logistical concerns. They need to be refrigerated. You know, it, it's uh, and some patients don't even want needles. So, you know, then you got a whole administration issue. So, you know, so bottom line, this is this is, you know, it's it's hard to see how it really drives down costs when you're looking at it as a system, you know, and, and it's really ultimately going to hurt patients and, and the ability to bring bring new and innovative treatments to, to the market. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, so the the law was passed in in August, but a lot of the I guess mechanisms have yet to the, the machine has has yet to to fire up in a, in a lot of cases. Um, so in 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 I guess in anticipation post post uh, passing of the law, but in anticipation of some of its um, some of its effects. What, what are you what are you seeing out there in terms of? reaction and implications already like what are your you know what are the the companies that you work with and for and your peers kind of bracing for or what are they feeling already no it's it's amazing uh at at, at the at the chain reaction you know with the stroke of the pen the consequences are actually rather profound resulting in dozens of companies announcing changes in their resource allocation priorities uh concerning pipeline activities yeah. Um, and it touches on the reasons we talked talked about a lot of the, the I'd say the original knee jerk reaction that I that I've seen has really touched on small molecule. Um, you saw folks like Al Nylum and Novo Nordics and AstraZeneca and, and Merck and BMS, among others, you know, is really part of that parade um, announcing that they were abandoning programs somewhere as late as in as phase three. And they didn't want to expend the cost of a phase three study, realizing that um, they were going to be limited in terms of the lifespan of these drugs. And, and also a lot of the often drugs, for instance, depend on multiple indications. And, and again, uh, that that's not that's a, a rate limiting factor uh, for bringing these new drugs to. Pro- so so really, I'd say in, in a nutshell. It was uh, an impact on resource allocation, and we will see it more down the road in, in, in terms of label expansions and other indications. And, it, and, it, and when you think about it, you know, before uh, this, this law change, you know, generally speaking, on average, these, these drugs enjoyed about a 14-year period of exclusivity. So taking it down to nine is is really a, a significant reduction. It's like 43% of their uh, relative period of exclusivity. And when you look at that from a cash flow perspective, you know, it, 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 it changes the math considerably. So, you know, when you're making a decision, you know, which wind am I going to invest in? You know, and you're going to be more inclined to go with the one that has the longer life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and that's, that's wrong, you know, and again, this, this is done by people who don't really have an understanding. Uh, I think we, as a, tra- as an industry, you know, somebody dropped the ball f- on, on the trade side, you know, whether it was on the pharma side, the bio, I mean, there was actually leadership changes, the bio organization, uh, shortly thereafter. Uh, so, you know, you can read the tea leaves as they, they be. So it, this has been rather profound. For emerging biotechs, scaling the process development and manufacturing of biologic molecules to clinical standards can be a challenging. However, you don't need to go it alone. Don't miss an episode of the Business of Biotech podcast, where we offer insights on regulatory, funding, and other essential topics. The pod is brought to you in collaboration with Cytiva, a global provider of technologies and services that advance and accelerate the development, manufacture, and delivery of therapeutics. Check out their resources at Cytiva.com backslash Emerging Biotech. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A.com backslash Emerging Biotech. On the other hand, on the other hand, you know, I think, you know, in the spirit of objectivity, 
I think it's important to call out that when Pfizer recently did an acquisition and acquired Seattle Genetics, and they actually attributed the IRA as to some of the industrial logic associated with the transaction. They, they uh, as opposed to some people have indicated that this is going to have an impact on, on, on drugs for senior citizens, uh, you know, uh, the team over at Pfizer kind of took the sailing approach and steered into the wind. And they kind of took the view that given the fact that the out-of-pocket costs are going to be capped at at $2,000 a year, they saw this as an opportunity to actually expand the market in, with senior citizens and, and embrace the change. Um, and, and, and further to that fact, the Seattle genetics focus were all really an antibody uh, conjugate platform. So those were large molecules by definition. So it, it gave them an advantage uh, of, of, again, allocating resources for thing for products that will have a longer shelf life. Yeah. So that, that's the other, I think, uh, aspect that I've observed in the short term that this law has been on the books. Yeah, yeah. You you, uh, you mentioned the industry associations as a side side question, kind of follow up to that. Like what what uh, you, you you know you, you've seen uh, over the course of your career. I'm sure you've seen um, successful advocacy on the part of industry organizations uh and and lobbying efforts and and in cases like this perhaps uh you know missing missing the pitch right like un, unsuccessful responses what is a what does an industry organization do to sort of save face or i, I don't know um try to try to re regain some traction in light of a mess like this, sort of a lack of representation on the part of its constituents. Uh, is there anything that the, the industry organizations can do or should be doing, in your opinion? I know it's off the cuff question. I'm just curious. No, it's. I, I think there. I think we need a new PR person. Um, yeah. You know, I think we're generally villainized, right? And when you think about the profound impact that uh, the biopharma products have had on society. We should be heralded uh, as opposed to criticized. Um, when you think about all the money that goes into defense spending and, and foreign aid versus what's spent in, in, in research and development and the impact on society, the money's much better spent over here. So, you know, we need to be able to understand and show people the cause and effect uh, of the impact. And the impact on the system, you know, maybe we can take a lead on on, uh, on re-engagement of the healthcare system and, and try to weed out the costs where and the inefficiencies where it should be. You yeah. know, for instance, you know, the, the gross to net discounts between branded products has never been higher. And that all those profits are going to the middlemen, the PBM, right? There's bipartisan efforts now that are starting to focus on that. But neither the innovative manufacturer nor the benefit of the or the uh, patients benefit from that. And you know that has to that has to be uh, you know we have to look at the drug supply chain. So there's a lot of different areas where we can be helpful in looking at the solution. And I think that's also going to come down to risk sharing. You know that you know you know. It's interesting, you know, the healthcare industry is like no other industry, right? If if you look bought a car and didn't have a warranty, would you buy cars? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> would, right. would, could you charge as much? I mean, it's kind of like people working on a house right now, uh, the electrician, the plumber, and they all got different blueprints. It just doesn't work. Uh, and, and so there, there's huge opportunities for us to kind of 
step up and, 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 and put our money where our mouth is. I think risk sharing for expensive therapeutics is appropriate. Why should we get paid for things that don't work? Yeah. Um, and we should be rewarded when they do work. Yeah. You, uh, yeah, you <laughs> talk about talking about working from different sets of blueprints. Uh, shortly, I think it was shortly after Biden took office, he announced uh, a, an initiative that that I think the biopharma industry cheered. Right? I mean, it was a, it was like a positive when when Biden came out and he said we're gonna we're gonna launch a cancer moonshot. He called it. I mean, it was it was an emotionally charged, um, you know, in, initiative. I think in part inspired by his experiences with his son Bo, uh, who who he lost to cancer. Um, and it it was billed as it was sort of held as this like pull out all the stops in cancer R and D and enable the 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 pharmaceutical industry and the biopharmaceutical industry with all the tools it needs uh, with government support full full freight government support to just go after cures for cancer um, and, and and now this now the now the IRA which seemingly you know I'm not a I'm not a scholar of these of these initiatives but seemingly flies in the face of the cancer moonshot. What, what say you? You know, it's, it's a great point. You know, there's some, there's so many ironies to this, particularly as small molecules are generally more cost effective and facilitate patient compliance as opposed to injectables generally associated with larger molecules. More importantly, patients are really the biggest losers here as very good medicines may never see the light of day for particularly no good reason. This is also uh, an illustrative example of how government policy undermines government policy. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, uh, as, as, the, as, as you touch on the moonshot, cancer moonshot, uh, really it's, it's uh, ability to be successful correlates to having the availability of small molecules. You've just cut, a, I mean, I don't know how the math breaks, but you've, let's keep it simple. You've cut the universe of, of prospective solutions in half. And they're more cost effective. You can get them to market the patients quicker. The time to manufacture is shorter. Um, it's, it's, really a, it's really an example of ill-conceived policy that can remove hope from the patient community without needed change. You know, uh, it, it's, 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 it is shameful. And, you know, I think that's part of re-educating people. You know, a lot of people will tell you changing this 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 new bill is next to impossible. Uh, you know, it's it's there's too much vested in it uh, as a general headline. I think the hope is that maybe we can make some inroads on tweaking some stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, as you touched on earlier, there was a lot of different things and special and a lot of boxes were checked with this this bill. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, you know, there was this was definitely a shout out to those who are looking for a, a black eye to pharma. But I don't you know, I think there's different ways if you want to approach this. I think this was this was more punitive than necessarily thoughtful and, and will prove to be ineffective at the end of the day. So hopefully if we can put together the dossier of evidence to speak to this and hope to take a higher road, you know, I, I think that would be my long winded response to your question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. I, um, I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are um, on, I guess, strategic uh, response <clears throat> right, right now. Like, 
in anticipation of more of the machine kind of on, on, you know, uh, being rolled out here, what, what should pharma and, and I, you could, you know, it's probably two different answers, uh, depending on whether you're a, leading a small mall company or a, or a biopharmaceutical company, but, um, what should leaders of, of pharma and biopharma companies be doing to gird themselves, I guess, try to mitigate, uh, some, some of the fallout or, or, you know, maybe take advantage of, of any silver linings in the act, uh, that, that they can, I mean, just general thoughts there. You know, I think it really depends where you sit. Right. You know, if you have large molecules, you know, I, I think your focus is that you need to be focused on which indication you're going to bet on. Right. I think now you really got to decide on uh, indications and timing. You know, I think the old days you used to be able to bring a drug to market, you know, in third line setting and then you can expand it and move it forward. And now people are going to sit on that. You know, there's no benefit to do that. You know, you don't make as much money. It's not the right period. So, you know, people, so that, that's going to be one fundamental shift, even if you're a large molecule company. If you're a small molecule company, I think you're pregnant if you got things in development, but I think it will potentially influence your programs, who you might even partner with in the future. Uh, and, and again, it depends more emphasis on market size and, and whether there's an unmet medical needs. So there's a lot of other factors at play. Um, and I think, you know, I think there should be some level of focus on working with the trade groups. There's, I know certainly there, there's um, um, other avenues that people have been banding together uh, in terms of rallying the industry, in terms of focusing on the messaging and, and the way to engage with the politicians as well, you know, power in numbers. You know, we vote these people and we need to make people aware, you know, again, yeah. I think we probably need a new PR agent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it is. Uh, I've, I've, I've marveled at that, especially post pandemic, you know, we went from, went from zero to hero to zero again, real quick. Like it was like a, you know, like a light switch. Um, I, I'm curious about your your thoughts, Alan. You know, you you talked about some of the underlying issues in in healthcare, specifically in in American healthcare, that you think are you know probably better addressed in a more uh, in a more meaningful way. Um, I, I you know I know that's a that, that's a conversation that could probably fill another hour. But I'm curious about like where your priorities would lie. If you were if you were king of the king of the world and you could say, hey, you know, here, here's the problem with this act and what we should really be focused on in terms of patient outcomes and, and healthcare in America. Um what what would the central tenets of, of the Alan Shaw approach look like? Uh, we could do a whole episode on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, yeah, well, let's do a teaser. Give, give Absolutely. Us a, you know, I a, think give I, us a couple of thoughts and then we'll we'll schedule that episode. Yeah, you know, I guess I would probably lead off with answering your question with a question and then I'll, I'll lead to where I, I would take it. You know, I think the old, you know, I think the IRA or the Innovation Reduction Act, uh, mm -hmm. as I, I, I view it, uh, really poses an overarching question. And, ha and and that is, how do you facilitate optimal cost effective patient access to innovative medicines while providing the necessary financial rewards and incentives to keep the prolific scientific engines running. Yeah. 
you know, that that's the bottom line, you know, and I think the what and that, and that goes to the way we administer health care and, and, and right now. And it goes back to my point about subsidization. And, and yes, the U.S. subsidized global health, um, but it's like we subsidize everything else. So what why should there be a distinction here? However, the way we administrate it is regressive because the patients are the ones that are administrating this and, and paying for it. And, and therefore, we need to and, and that becomes the rate limiting factor in terms of equal access and access for all. Uh, and that's where I think we have to get back to looking at how we administer health care insurance. And mm -hmm. from my perspective, it begins and ends with that. I mean, it, there's a lot more of this, this farmer supply chain and, and, and that and the different fragmented stakeholders that are siloed and focused on profit at the end of the day, as opposed to system value. Yeah. But I, I think in order to get people marching in order, you know, I think it begins on how we administer healthcare. And today, healthcare is generally administered through employment. And as we know, people on average, and this is all data behind it, generally are, stay with their employers on average three to five years. So by definition, healthcare insurers are uh, underwriting acute episodes or acute care. They're not interested in solving for chronic diseases. You know, and this was so much highlighted back when Gilead brought uh, Silvaldi, Silvaldi and Havoni, you know, cures. Yes, cures for hepatitis C, but there was debate who pays for it because the payers weren't getting a return on their investment. You know, what's the benefit to them to cure somebody of hepatitis C and forego a liver transplant in 20 years? There's no return on their investment. Better to kick the can and let Medicare pay for it when the patient's 65. Um, so, you know, you know, until we fix that, right, there's no focus on outcome. Everything's about focusing on costs. And so to me, the, you know, the, um, the Affordable Care Act, again, uh, you know, no good deed goes un, uh, unpunished, you know, did foresee the inevitability that you really need to have people in one one exchange or one system because now you can holistically solve for outcomes and the sit money that's being saved is accruing to the systems so you know the irony in all of this is a, a, a long-standing fringe benefit that all us americans hold dear to our heart are the antithesis to actually creating favorable outcomes and having alignment for that yeah yeah boy that's a politically sticky Sticky place to be. You know, it's like uh, it's like a criticism of Social Security. Crit criticizing Med Medicare is like a. I mean, boy, that is a sticky, sticky place for a for you know it it, it it's something that I don't think politicians necessarily want to. Yeah, it's not necessarily Medicare, right? It's it's the way we you know you get your health insurance, I get my health insurance. It's through our employers. Mm, and, yeah. and, you know, and so it's we need to think about, you know, do we just give people an allowance for health care? And, and again, the Affordable Act kind of provided for that. And yeah. then you just get your health insurance in the system benefits. So therefore, decisions are made that are about value to the system, you know, as opposed to uh, managing my P&L. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, like like we said, that's probably uh, we'll, we'll dig deeper into that in a in a part two, a follow on where we where Alan Shaw tackles the uh, the, the 
<laughs> problems with the American healthcare system. Um, as far as the the IRA is concerned, in the near term, um, any other any other thoughts on that that we haven't covered here? Uh, I, I guess specific points of uh, of advice or warning for our audience, biopharma and pharma leaders. Or con- yeah. concluding thoughts, what 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 we haven't uh, touched on. You know, I, I think I think, you know, I think the important thing here is that, you know, that the biopharma is a, has a biopharma risk reward model that shouldn't be done in isolation. And, you know, tinkering with it is like pulling a loose thread on a string and, and you know, you have unintended consequences, yeah. you know, uh, you know, without good health. Does anything really matter? You know, you got to be careful what you wish for. It's that simple. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your insight as always, Alan. Lots to lots to unpack, and you always bring uh, a lot of thought provoking and introspective uh, analysis to to these things. So, I always appreciate bringing that to the show. Thanks for joining us. Uh, always a pleasure. And if we dig into any of these other topics, we should probably have a cool, refreshing adult beverage at side and, and maybe record this at the end of the day as opposed to earlier in the day. <laughs> we're definitely gonna we're definitely gonna do that. Andy, what do you say? You want to? Get a, get a cooler full of beers for our next recording with Alan. Yes, please. <laughs> Good deal. Well, thanks again, Alan. We'll uh, I'll get in touch with you and we'll talk about what our next our next victim is going to be. I think we we uh, identified probably three or four topics we could tackle next. So uh, we'll, we'll bring that to you uh, and make some decisions here shortly. But in the meantime, that's Portage Biotech CFO and special advisor to many, Alan Shaw. I'm Matt Piller, and this is the business of biotech. We're produced by Bioprocess Online, part of the Life Science Connect community in partnership with Cytiva, who you can learn all about at cytiva.com backslash emerging biotech. Then head over to bioprocessonline.com backslash B-O-B, where I invite you to subscribe to a newsletter built exclusively for Business of Biotech listeners. And if you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast. We'll drop a fresh episode Monday morning like we always do. And in the meantime, I thank you for listening. 